Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled, The Voice of One Crying, and it's based upon the lectionary readings for December 5th, 2021, the second Sunday in Advent. Advent is a good time to remember that the Bible we read and reverence is a wilderness text, a text born of trauma, displacement, and loss. The ancient writers who penned sacred scripture and the vast majority of characters who populate its pages were not, by and large, history's winners. They were the persecuted, the dislocated, the enslaved, the desperate. They lived through periods of famine, war, plague, and natural disaster. They suffered starvation, violence, barrenness, captivity, exile, colonization, and genocide. They were, in countless ways, the wretched of the earth brave, lonely voices crying in the desert. But what did they cry? They cried their sorrow, of course. In the shadowed valleys of the wilderness, they cried their rage, fear, horror, and pain. But here's the remarkable thing. They also cried their hope, their fierce, muscular hope in a God who cares, a God who vindicates, a God who saves. Something about the wilderness experience birthed in them a capacity for profoundly life-changing hope, salvific hope, hope beyond hope. So perhaps it's fitting that on the second Sunday in Advent, we are invited into the wilderness to listen to just such a voice, a voice of robust hope crying out the truth of God's faithfulness in the most bereft and desolate of places. I've never seen John the Baptist featured in an Advent calendar, But all four Gospels place him front and center in Jesus' origin story. The baptizer clothed in camel's hair is the only gateway we have to the swaddling clothes, angels' wings, and fleecy lambs we hold dear each December. As baffling as it may seem, the holy drama of the season depends on John's lone, abrasive voice crying out in the wilderness. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, Luke writes, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was ruler of Galilee, and his brother Philip ruler of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias ruler of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caphias, John hears God's word in the wilderness. That is seven seats of wealth, power, and influence in just one sentence. Seven centers of authority, both political and religious, Seven very important people occupying seven very important positions. But God's word doesn't come to any of them. The story of the Incarnation begins elsewhere. It begins in obscurity, off the beaten path, appallingly far away from the halls of dominion and might. Perhaps the first lesson of the wilderness, then, is a lesson about power. Our gospel this week highlights a startling juxtaposition between those who experience God's speaking presence and those who don't. In Luke's account, emperors, governors, rulers, and high priests, the folks who wield power, don't hear God, but the outsider from the wilderness does. The word of the Lord comes to John, the one who gives up his hereditary claim to the priesthood, trading its clout and comfort for the privations and humiliations of the desert. What is it about power that deafens us to the word? Maybe Tiberius, Pilate, Caiaphas, and Herod can't receive a fresh revelation from God because they presume to hear and speak for God already. After all, they're in power. Doesn't that mean that they embody God's will automatically? 
And if not, well, who cares? They already have pomp, money, military might, and the weight of religious tradition at their disposal. They don't need God. But in the wilderness? In the wilderness, there is no safety net, no plan B, no fallback option. In the wilderness, life is raw and risky, and our illusions of self-sufficiency fall apart fast. To locate ourselves at the outskirts of power is to confess our vulnerability in the starkest terms. In the wilderness, we have no choice but to wait and watch as if our lives depend on God showing up, because they do. And it's into such an environment, an environment so far removed from power as to make power laughable, that the word of God comes. But Luke goes on. Not only is a wilderness a place that exposes our need for God, it's a place that calls us to repentance. John went into all the region around the Jordan, Luke tells us, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Elsewhere in the Gospels, we read that crowds streamed into the wilderness to heed John's call. In other words, they left the lives they knew best and ventured into the unknown to save their hearts through repentance. Something about the wilderness brought people to their knees. Something about the possibility of confession and absolution stirred and compelled them to turn their staid lives routines and rituals upside down. Yes, I know that sin and repentance are loaded words. I know that we're wary of them for good reasons. They are words which have been weaponized to frighten and diminish us. They are words that have been deployed in very narrow ways to pit us against each other politically, economically, and culturally. But here's the thing. Advent begins with an honest, wilderness-style reckoning with sin. We can't get to the manger unless we go through John, and John is all about repentance. Is it possible that this might become an occasion for our liberation? Maybe, if we can get past our baggage and follow John out into the wilderness, we'll find comfort in the fact that we don't have to pretend to be perfect anymore. We don't have to deny the truth, which is that we struggle and stumble and make mistakes and mess up. We can face the reality that we are fallible human beings prone to wander and incapable of living up to our own ideals. And, most importantly, we can fall with abandon and relief into the forgiving arms of a God who loves us as we are. We could live into the tenacious hope of our biblical ancestors, the hope of restoration, the hope of abundant and overflowing grace, the hope of salvation. Finally, Luke suggests that the wilderness is a place where we can see the landscape whole, and participate in God's great work of leveling. Quoting the prophet Isaiah, Luke predicts a day when every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways made smooth. Unless we're in the wilderness, it's hard to see our own privilege, and even harder to imagine giving it up. No one standing on a mountaintop wants the mountain flattened. When we're wandering in the wilderness and immense barren landscapes stretch out before us in every direction, we're able to see what privileged locations obscure. Suddenly we feel the rough places beneath our feet. We experience what it's like to struggle down twisty, crooked paths. We glimpse arrogance in the mountains and desolation in the valleys, and we begin to dream God's dream of a wholly reimagined landscape, a landscape where the valleys of death are filled and the mountains of oppression are flattened a landscape so smooth and straight it enables all flesh to see the salvation of God. So, where are you located during this Advent season? How close are you to power? And how open are you to risking the wilderness to hear a word from God? 
What might repentance look like for you here and now? Where is God leveling the ground you stand on? And what will it take for you to participate in that uncomfortable but essential work? The word of the Lord came to John in the wilderness. May it come to us too. Like John, may we become hope-filled voices in desolate places, preparing the way of the Lord. For books this week, Dan reviews Notes on Grief by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. On June 7, 2020, the Nigerian-American novelist Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie enjoyed her weekly ritual that has become a familiar sign of our times, a Sunday afternoon Zoom call with her family. Just three days later, her father, who participated in that call back in Nigeria, was dead. And so the jarring last sentence of the slender volume, I am writing about my father in the past tense, and I cannot believe I am writing about my father in the past tense. This was a father whom Adichie adored. Quote, so precious was my bond with my father that I cannot lay open my suffering until I have discovered its contours. End quote. Those contours are many, for grief is a cruel kind of education. There's the sheer physicality of grief that disrupted her sleeping and eating. She comments on the complexities of memory, some that brought joy, others that brought pain, some that she tried to forget, and still others that she could not remember. She struggles with feelings of nihilism. There are the well-intended condolences of friends that nevertheless felt presumptuous. On top of all this are the endless, roiling thoughts. This little book originated as an essay of the same title in The New Yorker in September of 2020. Adichie is best known for her novel Americana, listed by The New York Times as one of the top ten books of 2013. In 2008, she was awarded a MacArthur Genius Grant. Her work has been translated into over 30 languages. Notes on Grief will take its place with other classic treatments on bereavement, like C.S. Lewis's A Grief Observed, Nicholas Wolstertoff's Lament for a Son, Joan Didion's The Year of Magical Thinking, and Elaine Pagel's Why Religion, A Personal Story. For films this week, Dan reviews Hale County this morning, this evening. When the photographer Ramel Ross moved to the town of Hale County in rural Alabama back in 2009, he taught photography and coached basketball. He also started to film the everyday lives of the black community there across five years. The result is this debut film that he wrote, filmed, edited, and directed. The 76-minute documentary has impressed many critics for its non-linear and highly impressionistic quality. Some have compared it to disconnected dream sequences. There are scenes of a birthday party, a child getting a haircut, numerous takes on church life, basketball and football practices, and teenagers horsing around and just hanging out at home. Other images are deliberately surreal, like leaves blowing across a parking lot, the billowing smoke of burning tires illuminated by the sun shining through a tree, and several time-lapse sequences of the night sky. The film has no narration and very little dialogue from the subjects. A dissonant soundtrack befits the local poverty and historic racism of time and place. Hale County won a special jury award for Creative Vision at the 2018 Sundance Film Festival and then was shortlisted for an Oscar. It later aired on PBS and also won a 2020 Peabody Award. I watched this film on Amazon Prime Video. And lastly, for poetry for the second week of Advent, Alan Bozak's Advent Credo. It is not true that creation and the human family are doomed to destruction and loss. This is true. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. It is not true that we must accept inhumanity and discrimination, hunger and poverty, death and destruction. This is true. I have come that they may have life, and that abundantly. It is not true that violence and hatred should have the last word and that war and destruction rule forever. This is true. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting, the Prince of Peace. It is not true that we are simply victims of the powers of evil who seek to rule the world. This is true. To me is given authority in heaven and on earth, and lo, I am with you, even until the end of the world. It is not true that we have to wait for those who are specially gifted, who are the prophets of the church before we can be peacemakers. This is true. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall have dreams. It is not true that our hopes for liberation of humankind, of justice, of human dignity, of peace, are not meant for this earth and for this history. This is true. The hour comes, and it is now, that the true worshippers shall worship God in spirit and in truth. So let us enter Advent in hope, even hope against hope. Let us see visions of love and peace and justice. Let us affirm with humility, with joy, with faith, with courage, Jesus Christ, the life of the world. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for December 5th, 2021. I'm Debbie Thomas.